And if you've <clears throat> noticed, uh, the title of this sermon is The Godly in Distress. That should tell you something. Do godly people have distress? Yes. But they also have answers, as we'll see in the scripture. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? And at the end, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe that, say, thanks be to God. Psalm 4, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> the godly in distress. Yes, it's true. The godly do experience distress. And the Hebrew word for that we have translated distress means something along the lines of to be in a tight place, to be maybe between a rock and a hard place, we might say. There's no alternatives. There's no good way out of this situation. Uh, we all like win-win situations, but oftentimes and too often there are lose-lose situations. It appears there's just no good way forward and there's no, no solution. Perhaps some of us, uh, many years ago, thought life would be free from distress. Perhaps some of you this morning think, my life is going to be good. My life will be better than my forefathers and those who have gone before me. I, I'm sure I'm going to escape a lot of the, the difficulties and, uh, and, and burdens and trials and troubles that other people have come. I will be smarter than they are. Uh, had a conversation just a few minutes ago with one of you that we were remembering the idea that so many people today think that we, the current generation, is smarter than everybody that lived before. But we're not going to have these distresses and problems, right? False. And I can give you uh, a reason or a proof of it. Just drive over by uh, Vernoke Memorial Hospital and go through any ward and check, do a demographic search and you'll find that it's filled with people of all races, of all educational levels and all uh, economic levels. Nobody escapes any distress, all distress. 
Well, what about David? Did he ever know distress? Hmm, are you kidding? David's life was one long experience of distress. Let's just uh, walk for a few moments through uh, back to David's life. First of all, he was the youngest of eight brothers. That should tell you something. Uh, some of you who are the youngest know what it's like to be uh, the one who can never catch up and can never keep up with all the others in the family, always feeling like the runt and behind and left out of everything important. When he got old enough, he became a shepherd. Now, that was quite an occupation. If you want to know what that was like, read about Jacob and his comments to Laban. He was a shepherd. He said, I have endured cold and heat and and I've endured uh, wild animals and dangers and misery and discomfort and uh, so forth and so on. It's no picnic to be a shepherd. And that's what David did for many years. And then on one fine day appears the prophet Samuel in his home there. And Samuel was looking for the next king of Israel to replace Saul. And they went, he went through the sons of Jesse, one by one by one. It's an interesting uh, to read about that little uh, beauty pageant that went on that day. And each one was rejected. And they said, well, we're out of sons. And then somebody remembered, oh, yeah, there's that shepherd boy out there in the woods someplace, out with the sheep in the field. And so they went and rounded up David, who, of course, was anointed to become the king. Well, wasn't that a great thing? Well, we'll find out that maybe it wasn't so great. <clears throat> David later became the courier to his brothers who were in the army, carried food to them. And on one of those visits, he heard about Goliath. And David had an unusual self-confidence, but really trust in the Lord. And so he started asking questions about this guy, Goliath. And he offered to take on Goliath. Nobody could believe it. Nobody took him seriously until David finally stood before Saul himself and he said, I can take care of this. The Lord will be with me. And I've fought bears and lions. Why would I worry about uh, somebody like Goliath? You'd think that, that would be a great day for him, and it was, except that it led to a lot of other problems. <clears throat> Saul soon became suspicious of David and thought that David was trying to take over his glory and take over even his throne. Saul's paranoia just got worse until finally David had to become a fugitive, but not a fugitive from justice, a fugitive from injustice, for he had done nothing, nothing but been loyal to Saul. As he fled from Saul from place to place with a group of men who followed him, there were a couple of instances where David had the opportunity to finish Saul off with no problem whatsoever. And David, well, because of his integrity and because he saw Saul as God's appointed, God's anointed, he couldn't put him to death. And so he spared Saul at least two times. I think this caused some stresses with his army, though. They didn't like it that they were running around trying to protect David and David wouldn't even do in the enemy. You just imagine there were those who tried to help David. In some cases, they didn't realize there was a problem with Saul. The, the priests 
a group of priests were, were murdered because they had protected David. And then later, David had to become a refugee in Philistia. He went to another country. Basically, he became uh, a political refugee amongst the Philistians. But they didn't trust him either. And when it came to time for war, they refused to let David fight with them against Israel. That meant David was basically a man without a country. Did David experience stress and distress? I think he did. And if that weren't enough, when Saul was killed in battle and David became then the, had a free line to or free path to the throne, he didn't become king immediately. He only became king of Judah. And for seven years he had to fight even to, to, uh, to con consolidate his rule. Then came a time in his life which in many ways could be seen as the golden era. His victories in battle went on and on and he extend extended the, the, uh, the territory of Israel. He was in his glory. But then... It was his own sin that got him. In a moment of weakness, when he failed to be vigilant about sin in his life, he committed adultery, and that led to murder and all sorts of lying. And this ended up causing much problem in his family. There was a family breakdown that went on and on, including a revolt by his son Absalom. On his deathbed, on his deathbed, and one would hope that you could just lie there peacefully, David had his two sons, Adonijah and Solomon, fighting over the kingdom. Did David experience distress? He certainly did. He knew something about distress. And he wasn't a perfect man. He, he sinned, but he was a repentant man. And he could be called, and even to us today, remembered as a man after God's own heart. So David writes Psalm 4, and he tells us what it's like for us, too, to experience distress. And he gives us examples. How can the godly be blessed in distress? And David gives us three examples in his life that I think we need to learn from this morning. The first example that David gives us is that example of the, that he prays. In verse 1, he says this, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now think about just this opening verse for a moment. He prays to the God that he knows. This is not his first time to approach God. He didn't wait until things got really, really bad, and then he turns to God. This is the God he calls the God of my righteousness. And so he calls upon God as, as one who knows that God, that God will hear him and will answer him. He's, he's familiar with God. He's on first-term basis with God, first-name basis with God, so to speak. It was his custom. I have known, I've known people uh, in the course of my life who seem to think that God is kind of like um, the genie in the bottle who gives you three wishes. And you really need to be careful. You don't want to pray to God too much because obviously you only get so many shots at it. And then you're, you're done. 
your number's over. God is not like that. He does not give us three shots and then we're done. He doesn't give us three wishes. God is one who we come to if we know him like David did. We come to him. We think of him as the God of our righteousness. We don't have righteousness ourselves. It is his righteousness. And in his righteousness, we come. And so we, when we come to him, we call upon him with confidence that he will hear us. He is, the, he is God. He is eternal and unchangeable. And He will hear us. He is merciful. He is gracious. And He will respond to His child who calls, out, calls to Him. And so David calls to God. He prays to the God that he knows. Secondly, he prays with gratefulness for past deliverance. He prays for great, with gratefulness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. It's important that David, whatever situation he's in, and frankly, we don't know exactly what situation he's in. We'll talk about that later. We don't know exactly what the background is on this psalm. We do know it's a psalm of David. We don't know exactly what was happening to David at this particular point in his life. But he certainly was in dire straits. He was certainly in a difficult situation. But in the midst of that, he remembers what God has done for him, how God gave him relief in the past. And when he comes to God, he, he knows that God is not only able, but willing to answer him again. You heard me in the past. You have given me relief when I was in distress. And he knows that God will hear him again and give him relief from once again. Paul writing to the Philippians, reminds us with this famous verse that says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Oftentimes our prayers can sound like a laundry list of things we need. Mix those prayers with thanksgiving. Remember what God has done. Rejoice in what He has done in the past. And know that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he can be trusted once again to meet us wherever we are. So David also prays counting on God's grace. He doesn't make demands, but he does call upon God. And he says, be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. We who have understood that God through Christ has saved us. God made an offering for our sin and Christ was, the, was that offering. He was the Lamb of God, is the Lamb of God. And we are saved by grace. We are led by grace and we are kept by grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? Grace, grace will lead me home. So David, in first of all, gives us the example of his prayer life, which for us who are in distress or will be in distress soon or later, we need to pray. Be a people of prayer. Secondly, David resists sin. He resists sin in verses 2 to 4. Now it's interesting in this section, in verse 2, David addresses men 
He says, oh, man, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? The men that David addresses appear to be those who are against him, who have rejected him and who have turned against him, who do not honor him as he is due to be honored, but have instead rebelled. Perhaps, and we don't know for sure, but this could be in reference to the rebellion of Absalom. Remember, Absalom, David's son, was a very cunning and shrewd individual. He stationed himself in the gate. And as people would come and go, he would get into conversations. He was basically doing some political um, campaigning in the gate. And in the context of his conversations, it went something like this. He would get people talking about their problems with the king, their criticism of the king. The king is not a good king. We really recognize he has a lot of faults. Have you noticed that? Oh, yeah. So this conversation starts to pick up speed, and David uh, is the brunt of the criticism of Absalom. And as he builds up uh, his popularity among the people, he tells them, you know, if I were king, things would not be like they are now. No, you have a problem with him. He's not taking care of you. He's not a good king. You need a better king. You deserve a better king. By the way, I'm running for king. You know, The primary is next week. Yeah. So at one point, he declares himself to be king. And lo and behold, a huge group of people surround him. And he rebels against David. So he declared himself to be the replacement and people were duped by him. So perhaps David has this in mind when he's addressing these men who, who uh, turned his honor into shame and who have loved vain words, Absalom's vain words, and have sought after his lies. So David resists sin by confronting those who were against him. He tells the truth like it is. He resists sin by confronting his enemies. Secondly, he resists sin by reminding his allies of whose they are. In verse 3, he says this, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So those who were on David's side needed to be reminded that the Lord has set David apart to be the king, anointed by the prophet and the proper uh, ruler of Israel. And that David continues to understand what his, sta what his standing is before God and who he is before God and who uh, they are, who his friends are. And he recognizes that the Lord continues to heal him, hear him when he calls. Uh, sometimes... Our friends can almost seem like enemies, especially when they discourage us. Remember that when Jesus said that he was going to the cross, Peter's response was, oh, no, Lord, you're not going to the cross. We're going to be sure that does never happen. And Jesus rebuked him by saying, get behind me, Satan. Uh, it was strong words that Jesus called upon uh, 
Pete called down upon Peter. Sometimes our friends uh, forget that God's purposes for us sometimes is to go through suffering. And sometimes he takes us through distress on purpose. It's not always God's will that we be delivered from every difficult situation. Finally, he resists sin by self-control. In verse 4, we read this. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. It may be worth saying that the word to be angry can also be to tremble. That is, tremble. You feel this emotion and it's going through you and you're, it, it's working itself up. He says, you can tremble, but do not sin. Think about this. Think about it in your own hearts. Think about what's going on. Think about the situation that you're in. It's a distressing situation. It's a trying situation. And he says, but to be silent. Hold back. Don't vent. Don't, uh, don't vent everything that you're thinking. There's warnings about this in Proverbs. There's an incident when David was trying to escape or was escaping from Absalom in which a, a man named Shimei began throwing rocks at David's uh, entourage as they were trying to get out of Jerusalem. And one of David's men, one of his military leaders, Abishai, said, this guy's throwing rocks and cursing at us. Let me just to take him out. And David said, no, leave him alone. David restrained himself. He didn't let out all of his anger, but he restrained himself because he said, you know, who knows? Maybe the Lord wants him to curse me. I probably deserve this. What humility. David resisted sin. He resisted sin by telling the truth to his enemies and to his friends and by maintaining self-control. It's easy when we're angry and when we're in distress to let out everything and all our rage. But David did not. Third, he not only prays, he not only resists sin, but he also trusts God. In verse 5, we read this, Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. We know that in the Old Testament law, there was prescribed sacrifices for sin. Sin was always in the minds of God's people. But those sacrifices we learn later were merely pointing to the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice that was the Lord Jesus Christ who came. God himself took on flesh and bore our sins in his body on the tree. Oh yes, in the Old Testament, they needed to offer right sacrifices, but there were many sacrifices and they weren't good enough. Only Christ was the ultimate and final sacrifice for sin. And so as we approach God to trust in him, we start with knowing how he has reconciled us to himself through the sacrifice of Christ. And we can put our trust in him. David trusted God by ignoring the pessimists. Listen to the next verse. In verse 6, he says this, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? 
Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Now, may I remind you that truth is not determined by the polls. The ABC poll, the New York Times poll, or any other poll. People don't vote and decide what is true. But there are many who say, who will show us some good? The majority believe that no one will show us any good and that there is no hope. That things are terrible and they're just going to get worse. And the light at the end of the tunnel is the oncoming train, as you have heard. I know that you have had this experience when you're trying to trust in God and do what he wants you to do. And there are those gloomy folks, those pessimists who will tell you it's not going to work. This is not going to pan out. You're going to be in trouble. I'm often reminded, and perhaps I have, I hope I haven't told this story, but I'll tell it again if I did. When I was um, in my mid-40s, I went back to school to go to seminary, and the first weekend I had my books, I came home, and uh, my neighbor was a, a student, fellow student, and he took it upon himself to explain to me how totally impossible it was to even get through these classes that I was about to take. He had taken some of them. He said, there's no way you can do this. I had plans for the weekend. He says, forget all your plans. You can't do anything. You just need to study from now till the end of the semester. And uh, this, this brother uh, scared me to death. And uh, Monday I went down and turned my books back in and I resigned. Uh, and that was my start of seminary training. Fortunately, uh, the Lord had better plans for me and I managed to get on track. But so many uh, of our so-called friends will say to us, who will show us some good? The answer is, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. God lifts up his light, light of his countenance upon us, as number six in that famous benediction says, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. God shines his light, the light of his face, upon those who trust him, on those who trust in him, and not in themselves, and not in the pessimists. He trusts God, the psalmist trusts God by, God by delighting in what God provides. You must love this verse, verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. There's nothing wrong with grain and wine, but God gives us joy that's far beyond anything this earth can give us, anything material in this world. There is joy in the Lord. There's joy through the Spirit of God. And God puts that kind of joy in the hearts of His people, even people in distress. In the midst of distress, some of you have, te have borne testimony to this. In the time when you are most in distress, God's joy seems to hold you fast, and it's inexplicable. It can't be something you just gin up yourself. It has to be something that God does. David made this, makes this statement in Psalm 27. He said, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to behold His beauty and to inquire in his temple. David knew what it was 
to experience the joy that comes from God. And he knew that it was greater than any joy anything in this world could provide. And then he trusts God by going to sleep. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Perhaps that's the ultimate proof of trust in God. The ability to lie down in the midst of distress, in the midst of unknowns, in the midst of confusing and chaotic situations, to lie down without fear in safety and know that God will make you dwell in safety. There is no fear in death because of Christ. He has gone before us. He will keep us. Habakkuk says, "Let the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. So my friends, if you are in distress, have been, are in, or will be in, you know that the godly can be blessed in times of distress. Just like David, these are those who pray, resist sin, and trust in God. And all His blessings come through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is all that we need. The Apostle Paul could say this with even more emphasis and more clarity. And I want us, as we close this time, to take a look at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. And it's on the screen. I think we'll read it together as we close. Read it. Let's read together in unison. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, remind us whenever 
we are in this time of distress. Remind us of who you are and who we are in you. Help us to pray. Help us to resist sin. And help us to trust you with all our hearts. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name.